you woke and wanted Martin. We wanted Martin. Martin Kessler is our guest tonight on the Pink Smoke podcast. How you doing, Martin? It's such a dramatic introduction. Hello, how are you? <laughs> You're the one we wanted to talk about this uh, film. Uh, we're talking about an obscure little movie that not a lot of people know, 1990s Total Recall, directed by Paul Verhoeven, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. And Martin Kessler was the first name that we thought of to uh, to talk about this. Obviously, we've talked Philip Dick before on this podcast. Yes. Um, you're a big Verhoeven fan, of course. You're a big science fiction fan. So we want to get you on here and just ask you, just just catch up with you, man. How you been? What are you up to? What, what projects have you been working on? Pretty good. I'm actually working on something that might warrant uh, mention of Total Recall for the Pink Smoke site. I'm working on this piece that's kind of getting into architecture and science fiction and economics and I'm sort of trying to focus on a few specific works of media so I don't get too distracted like it's it's not supposed to turn into a book but um, it's sort of interesting looking at Total Recall the, the new brutalism where they shot in uh, New Mexico City or yeah Mexico City uh, new brutalism in Mexico City not brutalism in New Mexico City god I, we're off to a great start <laughs> <But>. <laughs> Um, yeah, I was sort of paying attention to the architecture this time and thinking maybe it, it should get a mention when I'm talking about stuff like Blade Runner 2049 and uh, THX and a couple others. So, Yeah, yeah. Yep. Obviously, you know, we've kind of checked in with you here and there. Been, I've been getting little, little snippets, little updates on the, the, you said it might be a book. Hey, if you want to write another book for us, that's totally fine. <laughs> it, it would be completely unintentional. So. <laughs> But yeah, it's been great just to kind of hear your progress on that. It's a really, really interesting subject. And obviously you're the one to write about it. So very excited for that. And like you said, you know, this this is definitely a movie that kind of kind of ties into that whole thing. And Blade Runner obviously is where Philip Dick, you know, kind of took the world by storm and then died right after it came out, obviously. So that's kind of a bittersweet thing. But it's uh, an interesting era in science fiction starting with Blade Runner. I mean, do you think, do you kind of pinpoint it at that? I mean, obviously Star Wars, you know, came out and it was sort of kind of going back to the Flash Gordon serial science fiction and everything. But then movies like Blade Runner moved in and they were kind of more philosophical. They're more literature-based kind of science fiction. Do you see it as like kind of starting a new era of the genre? I, I go at, well... I would go back a tiny bit earlier to Alien, which for me was a big entry point into cinema. That was like one of the first films that really got me excited about films. And a big part of that was like, there were so many interesting creative people involved and you'd hear them talk about it and you'd want to see what other things they worked on. And it's like, oh, the screenwriters went and worked on Total Recall and Ridley Scott went and made Blade Runner. And, you know, you can follow the the group in so many different directions that it kind of leads into a wider world of cinema. So for me, that was kind of a a big uh, turning point into, the, I guess, the kind of science fiction that I was really interested in uh, growing up. And Blade Runner falls into that. Although, like, it's really funny to me now kind of looking how different Blade Runner and Total Recall are. They take such different approaches to adapting Philip K. Dick, and it, like, the end results are so different. And I feel like because of the cultural impact that Blade Runner had, you'd probably... I, I know they just remade Total Recall kind of recently, but I feel like if you made it again today, it would look uh, way more like uh, Blade Runner. I think even the remake, there's uh, some things in it that look very Blade Runner, um, but the Total Recall has kind of its own feel to it and its own flavor. And um, 
I don't know. I, I like that about it, that the Philip K. Dick adaptation just doesn't have to be, you know, melancholy there's, there's and serious. No blue, there's and, no blueprint uh, <laughs> for a Philip K. Dick story. Sure. Well, I mean, you know, we, yeah. we talked about uh, one of his novels on the podcast in the past and, you know, it's very funny. And I, I think like that's one thing I sort of appreciate now looking at Total Recall is um, I, I think it kind of gets a little bit of the humor from Philip K. Dick. You know, I mean, there's a bunch of people who worked on the screenplay and it, it's it's a very extrapolated version of the short story. But there's things in the film that feel kind of like Philip K. Dick, Dickian to me, <laughs> you know, the Johnny Cap stuff or the woman disguised, like, you know, that feels kind of right for what this adaptation is. So uh, that was kind of jumping out at me this time, too. Definitely. You mentioned Alien and it's kind of funny how all these films are kind of interconnected in a weird way. Yeah. First, there was the Hodorowsky Dune that didn't come about, but right. so many people who worked on Alien obviously kind of got together on that project and, you know, that kind of evolved into them being involved with Alien. And then, like you said, they all went off to do Total Recall right after that. Ron Shusett, uh and other writers, you know, were going to work on the yeah. screenplay and get it done like right after Alien. And then it got tied up with all the, you know, copyright issues and whatnot for another decade yeah, well, or so. It took a long time. It also had like a long kind of weird production history of different directors coming on and off of it. It had, uh, you know, a couple false starts or like attempts to make it that didn't quite pan out and it kind of kept evolving and was like in development hell, I guess, for, for a long time is how you describe it. A few serious, like, uh, whew, like missed bullet there, like <laughs> yeah, I, this movie, like no way. Uh, well, although there's some like, when you hear like Bruce Beresford was going to do it, it's like, oh, I wonder what that would look what like. Would like what, what would that even, you know, they're going <laughs> to film in Australia with, um, I think Patrick Swayze or the, the one that was kind of most interesting to me is the David Cronenberg version, because I could really easily see this as a David Cronenberg film, you know, and like uh, he worked on it apparently for a long time, like a year and he did several different drafts of the script. And uh, you can feel a lot of his fingerprints in the final film I think you know I mean the I think the best scene in the film uh, when the Dr. Edgemore is trying to tell Arnold Schwarzenegger that you know you're not really standing here that was the scene that kind of got Verhoeven interested in the project and that was a scene written by David Cronenberg so it's like I you know, know you can kind of feel you know you can kind of feel well even that it's it's almost like I know Cronenberg's most famous for the body horror stuff and you can see that with the mutants but there's also a lot of like David Cronenberg espionage stuff and you can almost see like the roots of things like and butterfly, <laughs> you know, history of violence with the, you know, that like identities kind of stacked on top of each other. Um, you know, so like it, it does feel very Cronenberg in a way to me and it, it would be easy to imagine if you directed it, it would be something that would fall in between, um, I guess, Videotrome and maybe existence and make like kind of an unofficial trilogy. Like that's sort of how I imagine that going. But um, I guess Cronenberg, they said the issues with uh, him and De Laurentiis and Chaussette was that Cronenberg kind of turned it into a very cerebral film. And they, you know, the, the quote was, well, we want Raiders of the Lost Ark on Mars. Like right. you kind of, you know, you, you like, oh, you made it smart. You, you made a Philip K. Dick story. And then I think what's kind of great about the Verhoeven version is he he had it both ways. You know, it's Raiders of the Lost Ark on Mars. And it's also this uh, cerebral, interesting science fiction story when you kind of peel the layers back. And it's, it works on and both of those. That's a trick that only Verhoeven can do. I mean, I don't think yeah. anyone can balance, you know, crowd-pleasing action and, you know, 
beautifully staged blockbuster entertainment with, you know, moral and, you know, emotional and cerebral kind of theme is the way that, that Verhoeven does constantly in his films. And this is just, I think the, this and Robocop are being just the best examples of that. But I, it, it's funny because Cronenberg, I think ended up when he did Naked Lunch and adapted Burroughs, I have a feeling it would have been totally very similar to that, you know, where, yeah. you know, he's, he incorporates a lot of the story and then adds his own kind of Cronenberg sort of flavor to it. And I imagine that the kind of shifting identities and realities that we see in Naked Lunch would have played a lot into it. But you sent a few Absolutely. of the conceptual um, designs over to, for us to look at. And I thought it was cool that we saw the early version of Quato, I think it was called... Uh, or he's coming out of the, the Oracle. He's yeah. called the Oracle in the, in the, in the yes. concepts. Yeah, where he's kind of not so much a mutant that's attached to, to someone's abdomen, but it's like a, a, a small person that's like slowly coming out of someone else's body, like a, a larger body. So like the clothes are like I mean, now, now I'm like looking at that, I just think of uh, James Wan's *Malignant*. Is sort of the thing that comes to mind now when I, <laughs> I saw that concept art. Yeah, well, it's not far off. I mean, it definitely is more kind of a tinier being that kind of like forms out of an uh, out of another whole body. So yeah, I think that that's definitely the kind of thing it would have ended up being. Um, so that was really interesting to look at. But kind of going back to the story, we remember it for you wholesale. The original Philip K. Dick story, it's very, very short story. Obviously, tons was added for the screenplay. But the original story is kind of a story about narcissism, I feel. You know, it's about someone who is a nobody uh, that goes to being, you know, a secret agent, like an exciting person, then literally the most important person yes. on Earth. You know, like if he dies, the entire planet dies. So the kind of concept I think that Dick was kind of messing with a little bit was the idea that in your mind, you know, the perception through your mind, you could become literally anything that you want to be. You can make yourself literally anything you want to, which is, you know, a very interesting kind of concept to go into. But I think when Verhoeven got a hold of it and it became the movie that eventually became, became a film that's a lot more about the, um, like a lot of Verhoeven's movie, the kind of the frailty of the human body versus the kind of immortality of the soul you know something that can just last forever and the idea there being if your mind takes over you know and, it, and you're not bound to the usual rules of biology you can literally do anything you can literally become arnold schwarzenegger an action star who can kill everybody and barely get a scratch by the end of it and i i just love that about this movie i watched it you know again last night to prepare for this this is the kind of movie that's like die hard or or Road Warrior, where you're getting ready to watch it after a while, and you're just like, man, I'm so excited to sit down and watch this movie again. You know, I like it feels like excited the excitement that you, you don't feel these days because there aren't enough great new movies coming out, but like a movie that you just know is a masterpiece that you know you're gonna get a whole new read on every time you watch it. I just I love that feeling. I was actually it had been a little while since I watched it. And it's of course one of those films I watched like a hundred times when I was younger. And then I was almost like not in the mood to put it on. I'm like, ah, I guess I got to put it on for the podcast. And I, I really should give it a watch. Like I know I've seen it a million times. And then like, I was completely under its spell the second it started. And it really jumped out at me like how well paced it is. Like it's, um, it, it, it like it moves so well. And it's not just like relentlessly paced, but it's like, oh my God, every scene kind of, pushes you forward and it's a very propulsive script I mean you can feel like this is probably a script that a bunch of people worked on over the course of like you know more than a decade because it just feels so polished in so many ways but I, I think like what you're saying about Schwarzenegger uh, for me that was always my defense of 
him being cast in the film because you have a lot of people who say well really it should be more of an emery man and even in the short story it's more like a you know a nebbish uh you know it works in the office kind of character and then you look at some of the early casting when they were looking at like richard dreyfus william hurt even patrick swayze like you know they were looking for more of an everyman but schwarzenegger he is that you know comic book hollywood action hero fantasy and for me like watching it now as much as people say this is a film about you know critiquing uh or you know questioning reality and like yeah it is that but like for me it's almost more a film about questioning your fantasies and oh, yeah. um you know and, and i think like this idea that like whether it's him in a chair the whole time going through this uh, psychosis this fantasy that's kind of run amok or if you take what's on screen literally like they're not that divergent because they're both stories about dreams that overtake reality <laughs> in a way uh you know like the quaid character it, like he doesn't exist if you go by just like the surface text of the film he's a guy who's existed for like six weeks so you know at the end when he's saying well, like i am quaid and Ronnie Cox is saying, like, you, you're nothing, you're a stupid dream. It's it's true. It's this dream that, you know, the guy's been Hauser his whole life and Quaid for six weeks, but the dream takes over and it doesn't want to let go and it doesn't want to die. And it, it's actually more powerful than the real person. Yeah, that's funny. It's funny. Contrast that to Robocop, where mm-hmm. it's a movie about, you know, the machine is new. The machine is a newborn and has taken over the identity. And the question is, can it completely absorb the identity? And of course, the conclusion it comes to is, my name's Murphy, you know, he's not, yeah. he's, the man has not died, you know, the man has not been taken over by the machine, but in this, the machine totally takes over, you know, in a really, in a way that's <laughs> or incredibly satisfying and fun. merges into something new. I mean, like, yeah. you know, Quaid, the kind of nobody construction worker, like, that's not who he is by the end of the film, and you get a sense that, like, you know, his, his lethal instincts, he's constantly killing people, like, that comes from being Hauser, if you just go by the surface text anyway, like, that's, that's, um, you know, like one identity that's kind of seeping through and there's different parts where this past identity seeps through into who he is. So really like who he is at the end, it's it's like a merging between the person he was before and then the person whose memories were implanted, you know, but it's yeah. again, this another Cronenberg like dream, thing, right? Because like yeah. the end of Scanners where the two people merge together, yeah. you know, after their mind mind battle. Uh, I, I love, obviously you already mentioned it, but I can't think of a scene more perfectly written, acted, directed, edited, placed within the film as the scene where the doctor comes to talk to him and yeah, tell him that he's still at recall. And on the commentary, you know, Verhoeven says, audience members literally go and are, are anxious during that scene yeah. because they don't want the roller coaster ride to end. They don't want it to be a fantasy. They want to keep watching Arnold blowing stuff up and getting the girl and all the usual stuff. And I think that's a really interesting take on it. It's hilarious, too, to listen to Schwarzenegger sitting there next to him during the commentary. (laughs) Schwarzenegger doesn't want it to be a mind fuck of a movie. He's like just sitting there quietly for like three minutes for Hogan will go on about, you know, oh, he says, you know, if he comes in, you know, if he shoots him, then reality will literally, the the walls of reality will literally explode. And then they do. They literally explode with the guys running into the room. And he just talks for three minutes about the philosophy of the scene. And then Schwarzenegger is like, oh, this is the scene where I broke my arm or whatever, I broke my finger. <laughs> like, he does not want to talk philosophy about this movie. He just wants yep. to be a thrill ride. And that article you sent about uh, the sequel that never happened, the aborted sequel, mm-hmm. it's interesting that, you know, they submitted one that kind of worked on the same uh, thing where, you know, he's waking up in the chair and the whole question of reality comes up again. And Schwarzenegger 
didn't want to do it because he just wanted to do another thrill ride. He did the six day instead because he didn't want to do that. Didn't want to go through that whole thing again. He just wanted to have another fun action Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, mm-hmm. as so many people do. Well, like, like I found this uh, interview with Verhoeven where he described it, where he said it's it's actually disturbing, and I think it's right. And it's what's really impressive to me too is that it doesn't really tip your hand too far one way or the other it just leaves it like this hint and like it's this uncomfortable thing that's never completely resolved and i think that's that's sort of the brilliant aspect i think like if it ended with him literally being in the chair being lobotomized it wouldn't work it's the the question that kind of makes it disturbing and interesting and kind of keeps you stuck on this film like i i always think there's this anecdote by the i think it's the zucker brothers the directors of airplane where they were talking about how like even though the film like completely breaks reality on like every level they said when the film premiered audiences still sighed when the airplane landed safely and i was thinking about that like you just (laughs) don't want you know you don't want the like it doesn't matter that it's uh it's not real like no no film is real you know unless it's a documentary whatever but it's a you don't want that fantasy broken like no matter what and it's you know if you're invested in it you don't want something to kind of take that away from you and i think like within the the world of the film it's this character who's uh you know he's a nobody he's got a dead-end job he's got a wife he doesn't love and he just wants to go on this uh, escapist fantasy and basically be you know in an arnold schwarzenegger action movie and one thing that I was thinking a lot about this time uh, is how, if you read it as sort of this like Mulholland Drive, the whole thing's a fantasy version, then like it's all coming from his head in some way. And, you know, you can assume the first little chunk of movie before he goes to recall and gets sedated is is real. So like, what can you extrapolate from that? And it's like, well, you know, your wife who's, uh, you know, you don't really love her, you're dreaming about somebody else all of a sudden she's a double agent and I get to punch her and shoot her and divorce her in that order. You know, your best friend who shits on your dreams, he's, he's really a secret agent and I get to kill him. Like, you know, it, I, I mean, um, it was funny. I was reading like the early 1960s Peacemaker comic books because I've been watching the James Gunn oh, show. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like, it's hilarious to me because it's almost every issue, you know, the character is supposed to be this peace loving, like, you know, and, he always ends up murdering somebody horribly, but it's like as a last resort, they always frame it morally as like, well, I, you know, there's nothing I I want to do less than kill this person, but they leave me no choice. And it, it's like that kind of, <laughs> yeah. you know, justification where, you know, if a fantasy and you have this like really kind of dark underlying thing, you have to kind of justify it somehow. And it feels like that kind of comes into play with the film where it's not really... I guess the, the way they explain it, it would be, you know, the fantasy he paid for, but his own mind kind of takes that and runs with it. And he's having this psychotic episode. But, you know, it's it's interesting to see that like power fantasy dynamic play out and how the film kind of feels like it's both a, a really enjoyable popcorn kind of blockbuster. And it's also kind of a critique of those. It's a very fantasies. dangerous so, thing to, yeah. Yeah, to flirt with in a movie. I mean, if you tip your hat too much, it's going to be like Michael Haneke in Funny Games, right? Where everyone gets angry. I was going to bring up that, Funny that Games. He's, <laughs> yeah, that he's making, yes. yeah, he's making these comments about yeah. how audiences react naturally yeah. to the fantasy. Um, 
I, I mean, ever since to... L, I, now I'm like thinking about like, oh yeah, like Haneke and, and Verhoeven are doing some very kind of similar things. And Funny Games feels it's like, yeah. like the, the non-crowd-pleasing version of, you know, a, a Total Recall or something like, like it's, they're obviously going for something similar, but I think Verhoeven is just better at making something that kind of works on, uh, on that kind of audience entertainment level. I, I think like Haneke, it's uncanny. Or, you know, I, I can't say it's it's better, but he, he's maybe just not interested in doing that. Like I feel like that's kind of the one weakness of Funny Games is the, the exact sort of people that it's targeted at probably wouldn't sit down and watch Funny Games. You know? No, definitely not. It's an uncanny so. trick that that Verhoeven pulls, and even with uh, Benedetta, I was in yeah. awe of just you know how he he juggles these things, yeah. where you know it's uh, this depraved fantasy and this kind of moralistic you know uh yep. <laughs> allegory again, at the same it's, time this sort of violent fantasy that like you would rather believe is real at all costs even if it's it's not you know like that kind of it's interesting to see the theme from total call return in benedetta that was jumping out at me also this time mm -hmm. that um Rolvin kind of comes back to a lot of these ideas and a lot of these themes yeah absolutely and you in know, this movie he literally has characters tell you what's going to happen in the movie like twice yes. in the film characters just <laughs> say this is what's going to happen and that's exactly what happens i mean how do you do that and still not make the audience feel judged for having this you know visceral kind of reaction to the <laughs> all the violence and the sex and everything i mean who else can do that it's just absolutely incredible it's great it's great uh, there's also like i think there's some of that thriller like that that hitchcockian vertigo kind of verhoeven of the the fourth man that kind of creeps into this too and like one thing that was sort of jumping out at me is like how much doppelganger imagery there is you know this there's the hologram but there's also all these like mirrors throughout the film and it's like you know you have i mean the hologram scene's great because it's like literally another arnold and he doesn't recognize himself at first and that's kind of thematically where you go with the quaid and hauser but there's also, I'm not sure what the, the word is for it, but it's like not, not doppelganger, but when you have somebody who's like, seems like they're there deliberately to juxtapose. A foil. Uh, a, yeah, a foil, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, the, the blonde brunette thing, like that, that made me think a lot of like Mulholland Drive or even um, there's uh, the Harry from work, the construction worker guy. I've seen a lot of people make the joke that it's, um, it's not Danny DeVito, like, because he kind of looks like Danny DeVito and Schwarzenegger had been in Twins with Danny DeVito. Oh, yeah. But, like, the joke of, of Twins is how, like, these two guys deliberately juxtapose one another. And, you know, again, like, as a, if he's there, he's there to kind of, like, underscore that, like, Schwarzenegger doesn't belong in this place. You know, when, when you kind of look at them, it's like one of these guys should be working at this construction job, the other should be off saving the, the galaxy, you know? Yeah, so, yeah. you know, like, when Schwarzenegger is saying, to uh, Sharon Stone, like, you know, I, I want to do something with my life. I want to be somebody. And you feel that. And like, because it's Arnold Schwarzenegger, you're immediately on his side. You're like, yeah, you should be doing something. He should be somebody. He's Arnold Schwarzenegger. Here? You're much better you know? than this. Yeah. <laughs> so. The the character is described as a, uh, as a Dagwood Bumstead type in the original screenplay. I mean, you always think of someone like Paul Giamatti being the perfect, you know, Philip K. Dick protagonist, you know, if someone's going to play him. Yeah. I think, if you accept that everything you see before recall uh, is real and everything after that is fake, you have to accept that probably what happens is he does not look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. No. You know, he probably looks like Paul Giamatti or like his friend at the construction site. You know, he looks like a schlub 
And that imprint of him looking like a giant bulked up muscle man just seeps through to the beginning. Yeah, it's just he always (laughs) has that perception of himself. And so that's how he always sees himself, even in the scenes that are meant to be reality. I think you just have to accept that, you know, that's that's a construct of his own mind and not what he actually looks like, because otherwise it would be truly ridiculous. Although the twins comparison is great. I love um, I had only noticed this time uh, again in the Dr. Edgemar scene, right when he comes into the room where you see Arnold in the mirror, there's that shot of him in the mirror. He's holding the gun on them. That's just brilliant. So, yeah, a lot of great mirroring. And as far as foils go. My main takeaway watching it this time was Richter, the Michael Ironside character, being the foil to Schwarzenegger because we don't really see a perspective of any other character except for Richter. I think Sharon Stone has one or two small moments like where she's practicing tennis, where she's by herself. But for the most part, if we're not with Quaid, we're with Richter, you know? And he could almost be having his own recall fantasy where he is a secret agent and he's tasked with going and bringing this guy in and like Quaid at the end, he's in the dark. You know, Copenhagen does not tell him what's going on. So he's been literally trying to kill Quaid the whole time because he doesn't know what the whole what the, what the thing is. So he is just as much in the dark as Schwarzenegger. And you get his little subplot where he's in love with Sharon Stone. And he's that, that's you know, done so well. Like I, coming after his, him at the end for that. Yeah. He, he has this whole other motivation that's completely different than Ronnie Cox. And that, like, I think. That works really well, you know, versus like a lot of films, there's the there's the main bad guy and there's the henchman and they have essentially the same motivation, you know, we're bad guys. But like, you know, you can see that, you know, he feels hurt that his his girlfriend or this woman he's in the relationship, maybe even his wife was like assigned to be Schwarzenegger's wife. And, you know, already from the beginning, he, he, he would like to take the opportunity to kill him. And then like the scene where Schwarzenegger shoots her, I always love that moment where it kind of lingers on Michael Ironside's face and he has that, you know, just great expression where it goes from sorrow to anger. And like, you feel like in some way as, as ruthless as that character is, and he shoots people in the back and he's just like a, you know, horrible right. <laughs> thug. Uh, you're kind of on his side to some degree, which kind of makes him a great villain. And like, you yeah, the way hell has like... to bring him down right before he shoots out yeah. the windows and kills everybody. You, know, you, <laughs> yeah. you see it in his face, like realize like, Oh, I yeah. gotta come down from this. I gotta get my get my bearings a little bit. I also always I never feel to crack up the line, uh, the throwaway line, where uh, he says to Helm, uh, or Helm says to him, uh, "You would, you know, I wouldn't want a guy looking like him banging my my old lady." I'm sure she hated every says, minute. Yeah. <laughs> you say she liked it? Uh, no, I'm sure she hated every minute. <laughs> he just rubs it in. Yeah, that's terrific. I don't know, and. I wondered like how Michael Ironside got involved because he was somebody who worked with Cronenberg and uh, what what I heard is that like originally Verhoeven wanted Kurt Wood Smith for that part, which would have made it like really feel like a Robocop reunion if you had Ronnie Cox and Kurt Wood Smith both playing kind of similar. And I guess Kurt Wood Smith thought that the role was just too similar to Robocop, so he turned it down. But Michael Ironside, I I think, is really just great in that part and kind of makes it feel different. Like it's not just a rehash or... You know, he's got some kind of spin I, on I like his character. I like that the, D, the Dean Norris character, Tony, yeah. the, mute, the yeah. mutant, almost looks like a distorted version of Richter in a weird way with his face being the way it is. You know, it's almost like a, a distorted mirror image of him. So like kind of more mirroring going on there. You know, I don't know if that was an intentional thing, but I like that a lot watching it this time. So I know there's a lot like there's the for some reason, there's like multiple view screens at times where you have like people 
being played on more than one screen. There's a lot of that imagery. Like when you kind of start to look for it, you realize like the film is full of all these doubles and and uh, I don't know. It, it's it's just sort of interesting the way that kind of visually. It brings yeah, out this the, idea the, of like the simile of screens and, throughout yeah. for Hoven's films. I mean, on this in this movie, Melina, Richter, Helm, Cohagen, Bob mm -hmm. McLean, Doctor Edgemar, and the guy who contacts Quaid and Hauser when he comes into it are all introduced on a screen. You know, they all come through well, a screen first. And I, I think this is sort of like a, a through line through some of Verhoeven's science fiction films, where it's like you can't necessarily trust what's on a screen. You know, I mean, like right from the beginning, you have the like news footage of the, the rebels on Mars and it's like, um, you know, meant to be deliberately misleading. And then when Sharon Stone kind of turns to this like tranquil fantasy, it's supposed to be this like escapist right. scene on the TV. On the it's, it's like already you feel like that, you know, there's some idea in there that like, you know, maybe you can't trust what's being offered from, you know, whether it's, it's you know, in the news or whether it's just like characters talking on the screen. And some of these people like, I mean, Cohagen, Ronnie Cox's character, I feel like he, he's lying right up to the last minute, right? I mean, like at the end when he's talking about like, you can't start the reactor, you'll kill us all. He doesn't really believe that, does he? Like he's- I he, don't know. That's, I, that's the great thing about that ending, Ronnie Cox's performance there. I don't know if he actually believes it. He is seems he, he like, desperate for him not to, to turn it on, you know? You know, because like the, the whole rationale is like, you know, well, he can't charge for air and he won't have the turbinium. He's going to lose all this power. And it's like, I mean, is he, is it like him being delusional where he just comes up with this rationale where it's like he has to create a reality where he can't lose his own power? Like you start to wonder things like that and it, it gets really kind of complicated. I mean, there's so many questions about the film I have. Like, of course, there's the big one about, you know, whether it's real or not, but it's like, I, don't know, I was thinking about the, the mutants also it, where... You know, they do give an explanation where they say, oh, it's the cheap domes and the rays getting in and the lack of air. But like, and I think ever since I was a kid, I always wondered if if it had something to do with the fact that they were like living close to these like Martian ruins and it was like somehow turning people into <laughs> Martians. And like, I, you know, is that just like implied? Am I reading something into it? And then if you peel the, the layer back and think like, well, it's Schwarzenegger's fantasy, you know, they showed him the the concept art of these like aliens right at the beginning is that like his mind kind of turning that into something you know is his mind just kind of like creating these mutants out of the those like martian visuals that he showed he's shown at the recall establishment there's there's a lot of things like that but the, the questions are kind of what makes it interesting like i always think um i mean we we're talking about blade runner before you know how like every version of blade runner lately when they like recut it they make it like more and more um apparent that uh, Harrison Ford's maybe supposed to be a robot in that, right? Mm -hmm, and it's right. like, it, if he's a robot, then it's it's stupid. <laughs> but the question <laughs> of if he's a robot is really interesting. It's like, you know, I think it's it's more interesting to have it as a question than to be a statement a lot of the time. And I feel like, you know, there's, there's things that aren't explicitly stated in this film, but like I've, I've been thinking about them like for years and years kind of wondering about this stuff and it's that kind of science fiction that's fun to kind of theorize about and talk about and you know you just sort of wonder and make these connections and try to figure out how that world works yeah absolutely i mean it's amazing when you're busy deconstructing this film to yourself and thinking is it real is it, is it not real you forget about all these really fantastic science fiction subplots that they include yep. with the mutants and the psychics and, I mean, I feel like uh, Benny uh, is an interesting character, you know, when he reveals his alien arm. 
There's a lot yeah. of really cool stuff that's just oh, the side stuff. a great stuff. character, too. I love yeah. the I mean, trail. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, like, that's kind of the thing, too. I think, like, when people talk about, like, oh, it's it's all a dream, then it kind of invalidates what you're seeing on the screen. But, like, I don't think that's the case. And, like, to me, it's actually really interesting if you watch it as, as being a dream, like, the places where reality kind of pokes in and disrupts it. Like, the um, what, what jumped out at me was uh, the scene with the disguise where Schwarzenegger first arrives on Mars like what's the phrase that sets off this head to malfunction it's two weeks and two weeks, how long yeah. is how long is his implanted vacation supposed two to be weeks. two weeks so I think it's almost like a moment of like reality kind of rearing its head in the fantasy and then like disrupts things and that's why that head glitches out and like if you read it that way like it's not like you, you throw everything on the screen out if it's all a dream. It's like, oh, no, this is actually more interesting to watch it that way. So I, I think like, you know, there's some of these um, like video analyses or people theorizing where it's like, well, it doesn't matter what's on screen because it's it's all a dream. And it's like, no, you know, and again, I, I think you could compare it to something like Mulholland Drive where it's like, no, no, like the dream is the story. You got to kind of work backwards and figure out like where this is coming from and if you want to read it that way. But. And Again, that like, scene alone is, you know, he's yeah. hiding under another body. You know, he's got another yep. surface on top of him, a layer <laughs> that gets peeled away. And that's, yeah, oh my God, this movie's great, man. <laughs> it's good, right? <laughs> it's good stuff. Um, I mean, it's it's interesting that, like, they never really got that sequel off the ground because it's such a, you know, in some ways it would have been exciting if you had, like, Schwarzenegger returning for a sequel for this. But like it's probably for the best that it's just left the way it is and um yeah you know, i mean I, some of the ideas i mean i guess first they tried to incorporate minority report into the sequel yeah they, they were going to adapt uh, minority report basically into total recall 2 and I, I think like a couple ideas for the sequel um i went through i guess a couple different people it was going to be jonathan franks directing it jonathan frakes not franks frakes uh directing it for a little while who did uh, star trek number one well, yeah, <laughs> but, you know, I, I think now he mostly like directs uh, television and stuff, but like he had a little moment where like, I think Star Trek First Contact made a lot of money and he was doing stuff like Clock Stoppers and the Thunderbirds movie. And like, I, I, I could have seen him doing a, a Total Recall movie that could have made sense. And I think like a couple of the ideas for the sequel, some went on to the Spielberg Minority Report, some went on to the Total Recall remake. Like I, I think the elevator through the earth idea is something that was originally for the total recall 2 sequel and then they ended up just using that in the remake since right um, ideas seem to stick around <laughs> but uh i don't know uh, yeah so it could be I, interesting, I think but I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm happy with what <laughs> I, i'm, I'm happy we never got a sequel actually like a, i feel like i'm in that place more and more now where it's like I would rather stuff not get a second season not get a sequel it's like if it's good just leave it be like it, <laughs> yeah. you know but you mentioned Hitchcock, and I was yes. always surprised uh, when I do listen to the audio commentary. He mentions Hitchcock more than any other okay. influence in this particular film. Obviously, he would make Basic Instinct two years later, yeah. which is his, you know, kind of Hitchcock movie. But the more I thought about it, I think about three Hitchcock movies that I think form kind of an interesting trilogy. Two of them are bad, but one of them is a masterpiece. <laughs> um, but but they have interesting ideas there: um, The Wrong Man, Suspicion, and Shadow of a Doubt. And these are okay. all films yeah. about, you know, yeah. a person who might be someone else. You know, they might be not be the person you know that they are. In Wrong Man, obviously, it's you know Henry Fonda. We're pretty we're pretty confident throughout the whole thing that he 
is not a criminal that he's, you know, it's just a case of mistaken identity, but because his wife, you know, it gets, because they're so uh, aggressive in their pursuing of him, the wife actually goes insane because she starts to be convinced that everyone is saying her husband is a criminal. It must be true. She must not know this man at all, that her perception of the world versus her personal perception are kind of having this weird clash uh, which you also get a little bit in suspicion where, you know, is Cary Grant, the man I married, is he, a, is he poisoning people? Is he a murderer? What, what's my complicity if he is, you know, what does it say about me that I would marry somebody like that? Uh, and th those two movies ultimately I think are failures, but uh, shadow of the doubt, you know, is it takes that concept really beyond by making it Joseph Cotton, the uncle of this young woman who's kind of coming into, you know, adulthood so that she's learning that, you know, the world, is not what she thinks it is. I mean, the whole thing is just kind of this whole story of, you know, her kind of realizing that there's this sinister kind of edge to the world that she never realized existed. Her reality is now completely changed, whether her uncle is, you know, an evil person or not. And again, the complicity because she's named after her uncle. I think that Claude Bros Le Butcher would be like a better version of yep. these kind of themes later on, especially of suspicion. But it's interesting to think about these films in terms of, you know, a person who is maybe not the person that they think they are and how this movie, the, the ultimate kind of evil of this movie would be if your, your lie because of something other people did that the world changed the perception of you. If Ronnie Cox really manipulated you to think you were a good person when in fact you are evil, this whole thing in terms of like personal destiny would be a disaster, just a complete tragedy. And the idea of that Verhoeven kind of puts out is, well, what if you could make you? And that's kind of going yes. back to the narcissism of the original story of like, if you can decide what you're going to be, then you'd be Alan Schwarzenegger. Even if you look like Dagwood, you know, you're going to be a muscle bound, indestructible force that will save, be the savior of this whole planet and, you know, and save everybody. And it's a beautiful kind of sentiment. Mm -hmm. And again, it kind of comes from Robocop, the kind of idea that like your soul still exists within this machine. And the kind of idea of resting the control of that identity is on the surface of Tool of Recall throughout the entire thing. And so that kind of makes it interesting that the Hitchcock sinisterness of it is, you know, uh, Quaid being told, you know, you're not in control. You're not the person. Yes. You're, it's not up to you to decide who you are. We are making that decision. And by the end, his decision is, even though he's still within the machine, his decision is, okay, I'm going to be what I want to be, not what everyone is trying to manipulate me into. So that's well, just, that's you a get that, that great final exchange where you know you say well you know what if this is all a dream and then she says well you better hurry up and kiss me it's like that's the final resolution is is like if it's a dream then enjoy it you know <laughs> right. basically you know and I, I mean I love some of the like the reveal of Quaid really being like a double agent who's completely unaware of this mole that's supposed to infiltrate uh, Quado's rebels and you know when he finds out you know oh okay like he you know schwarzinger spends the whole movie trying to find out who he was and then he finds out that he was an asshole he was a bad person and it's that <laughs> idea that you can kind of question like you know okay like you know this is my past but like am i going to let that define me am i going to be something else you know do i get to decide you know and it's it's yeah, really it's compelling a, actually it's it's uh, a henry fonda moment with the wife at least where yeah. it's like Am I a horrible person after all? Yep. I don't remember being a horrible person, but maybe I am. Maybe it's something I don't see, but everybody else does. I mean, I, that's just, 
incredible. I love too that the last line of existence is essentially the same line as total recall. Are we still in the game? You know, yep. existence is sort of, you know, kind of became Cronenberg's total recall. I, I think so. I, I think like that it feels like yeah, maybe if you had made total recall existence wouldn't exist. Existence I always think of as like the last Cronenberg of that like early gooier era because after that he goes on into Spider and then he does the Viggo Mortensen movies and it just feels like he kind of moved on to a different phase of his career. Um, yeah, I would agree. Although I, because I love Spider so much and don't like oh, his well, movies after Spider so much, I always I mean, tend to like great. think of that one with the earlier <laughs> ones. But I, know, you're it's, right, you're right. That's uh, that's where he yeah. moves into a new territory. Even well, I mean, even even then, like Existence to me already felt like like a throwback to an earlier Cronenberg because he had done stuff sure. like Dead Ringers and you know he kind of you know Existence almost feels like you know close to his eighties movies um so i i do wonder like it, it probably was a lot of his ideas for total recall that ended up making their way into existence and if he had made it you know if he had made total recall he might not have felt the need to make existence <laughs> i don't know but uh, it, it's interesting um, yeah existence is also kind of more a story of like being corrupted by a non-reality yeah. you know the fantasy yeah. corrupting you where that's kind of as we just kind of mentioned it's like a, a positive thing in total recall that you can make it, the fantasy work for Unless you. Unless it ends with you getting lobotomized. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sure. You know, well, you, you, said you sort of left to question that. The but... movie is a fantasy. No movie yeah. is real. When the movie's over, it's going to end. Yes. You know, when she says, kiss me real quick, the movie's almost over. She might as well say that, you know, because yeah. this is the end of the it's, fantasy. It's, it's the end of the dream. Conclusion. I, I think that's even a line in the film where it's, it's like, Cohagen says, like, well, all dreams come to an end. You know, it's like... How do you make the most out of your fantasy if that's all there there is? So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. No, it's great. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can keep saying that. But uh, what's Plato's line to Quaid? Uh, you are what you do. A man is defined by his actions, not his memory. Yeah. You know, and I but love I was... that too. I love that. You know, ultimately, don't worry. In a movie too, in the context of a narrative, that's you know, yes. worry about what you're doing in this movie. <laughs> You know, yeah. anything else is is backstory that has nothing to do with you. Like at the beginning when we meet you, Douglas Quaid, that's who we know, and that's what we know about you. And of course, Arnold Schwarzenegger brings his own character kind of memory into this as well. Yeah. When you see a Schwarzenegger movie, you know what kind of stuff Arnie's going to be, be getting up to. And Verhoeven plays that so well in this. And I, I, I think, think that's, I mean, I think it's, it also has, yeah. sorry, yeah, go ahead. Oh, well, no, I think that's a really good point, how it's like in the fabric of the film, this idea of the character being defined through his actions. And that's that's something I wish more films did. Like, it, you know, you, they sit down and give you like a, you know, five minute backstory. That's yeah, exposition. That character is. And like, it, it never does, like, and again, like the script, it just feels like everything is so kind of action-based. I mean, like right from the beginning, his buddy's telling him, you know, hey, you go to this recall place and you might end up, you know, getting lobotomized what's the exact next scene <laughs> there's no like in between it's just like he's made up his mind he's in through this like who cares what his buddy says that tells you something about the character like right from the yeah. get-go how powerful this fantasy is that he wants to realize of, of going to mars it, it's like i, I don't know it, it's it's really interesting that like this character is completely defined by his actions and and not at all by his past in 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 some ways he's in complete opposition to his past no matter which reading of the film that you take so it's uh, yeah it's, it's really interesting like I, I do kind of wish more more films had that philosophy especially if you're doing like a hollywood action film like 
let let the characters be defined by their actions and not like just it, like I, I hate all the the posturing. I, I feel like it's in movies now where you have like lazy screenwriting where they they, they have to tell you like oh this character is such a badass and then they never do anything badass. And th- right, this film right. it's it's um, you know the opposite, which I, I think like you know again this is one reason why it works so well as the popcorn action movie, which. Yeah, because that's the other thing about it is, I mean, it's Verhoeven and this violence is operatic, you know, it's beautifully choreographed and it's fantastic, very visceral sort of action. And it plays into the theme as well, because, you know, if it's a movie about uh, being so in control of your mind that you determine, you know, your reality, then all this violence that's happening to everybody else, you know, human... Verhoeven looks at human bodies as weak. You know, he thinks that, you know, a body is something that needs oxygen. It's something that gets sucked up by the wind. It can have its dick kicked and its arms ripped off and it sweats, you know, like there are so many like things in this film that are very specifically organic. It's funny because it reminds me of the Philip Dick story where he takes a whole paragraph to talk about him uh, having some snuff and stinging his nose and burning the roof of his mouth, you know, really getting you into like, this is reality, like our fragile bodies that are, burned and injured you know and are susceptible to these things and Verhoeven uh, running theme, theme in all of his films but I think most interestingly in this one because the mind takes over the body and because the body is therefore then therefore the body becomes invulnerable <laughs> because uh, everyone and, and he shows up by having everyone else explode and get you know completely drilled by bullets and have their arms ripped off and everything except for Quaid you know he has that one moment where he's, you know, his face is going to, you know, explode, you know, at the end of the movie. Uh, but even that he walks away from looking just well, as good as I was going to say the moment with did. the hologram, I feel like it's such a great moment where he's this like non-corporeal force. And then, of course, there, it's the hologram laughing and he walks around the corner. Yeah, they can't shoot him. Guys. Exactly, so, exactly. <laughs> you know, um, so I read the, uh, not, not just the short story, I read the novelization by Pierce Anthony. Oh, yeah, I've got that hard, a hardback of that. How Which, is that? Uh, I read it yet. Uh, not not great, I thought, but it's kind of interesting that it was written sort of before the final draft of the screenplay. And just it, for the most part, it's very very similar. But there's a few kind of divergences which are interesting to me. I think like in well in the novelization, he's still called Quail, like in the short story. Yeah, um, and I've heard there's an explanation about like oh you know they didn't want to have any accusations of like drawing a parallel to uh, the politician Quail, but like. For me, it's also just like I don't think I could buy Arnold Schwarzenegger as a guy named Quail. Like, no, he's Quaid. <laughs> like, it needs a hard yeah. D at the end. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, but, uh, but like, uh, there's also like a, a lot of stuff with the actual aliens. Like, kind of when at the moment when he meets Quado and kind of goes into this flashback, there's actually stuff of like aliens from ancient times and like, oh, we're gonna leave this for humans, almost like the aliens in Space Odyssey or what you know. Like, it, it's more like that, which I, I don't think would have worked as well like I kind of like that there aren't any aliens in the film and it feels like there's sort of this this mystery about like you know what happened back then and what you know why is there this reactor and you know when Cohagen's trying to get in his head I assume when he's saying like you know well you know they it would cause a planet-wide meltdown and that's why the Martians never used it and you know for me it's it's kind of more intriguing than like literally having aliens tell like Quaid oh you gotta do this and this and this oh yeah it's a total <laughs> MacGuffin it would have been a disaster yeah. to try to make like you know a backstory for it and have like this whole yeah. other thing kind of introduced into it when we're already yeah. kind of involved in the story well also uh, in the novelization like the the machine is described almost like a helmet and it just made me think of the helmet that James Woods wears in Videodrome 
Uh, oh. So <laughs> I, was, I was like just picturing that when I read the novelization. But it's technically it's like, wearing that helmet because James Woods yeah. would not put it on. Oh, that's right. I, I, I remember scared. that. Some, somewhere. <laughs> it's kind of a scary looking helmet. Um, so like there were a couple things in that, but like the novelization, it's kind of, and I feel like it, it sort of ramps up the sexism in some ways and it's just not as, uh, not as enjoyable as watching the film. Like Anthony was kind of going for like a pulpy kind of feel maybe. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't think it, it works as well as when it, it just like, I mean, the film, already has kind of this like sleazy feel to it which works for it but like i feel like if you like double down on that it starts to kind of make it gross but uh, i don't know i i like the look of uh, total recall and it's and it's like ugly in a lot of ways but like visually it's, it's like interesting how how it's ugly and all these like patterns i was trying to think if there was like some kind of thematic Thing that kind of connects all this stuff and i noticed like a lot of people are wearing like flannel like grids or stripes or patterns and a lot of people are wearing gray and then you get these like highlights of either red or blue and i guess like you know red and blue it's like this uh, duel between the fantasy and the reality you can kind of interpret it that way and of course matrix uh plucked that for its uh, red pill blue pill but you know i, I love like all the little details like the um, receptionist when she's changing the color of her nails with the pen yeah or you know there's of course like the blue sky mars is maybe like depending how you read it 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 might be like the complete embracing of uh, fantasy or reality creeping in or you know however you want to interpret it it's it's interesting that there's obviously like something kind of going on with the colors and i thought the blu-ray kind of diminishes that though because it's like it makes a lot of the blues look almost green it's one of those like teal (laughs) blu-rays but um but I don't know, I always kind of liked, like, I always think Verhoeven does visually interesting things. Um, it's the same cinematographer I think he worked with for... Um, Sios Vacado, right? Or is it... I, I think so. Like, all, all his, like, earlier films. Um, and I don't know, like, it's... Like, some of his movies look, like, visually kind of ugly. Like, Starship Troopers has that, like, flat, even lighting. But it's completely perfect for that film. You know, say, like, poppy kind of primary colors and... Yeah, the template for how he's going to have Starship Troopers looks kind of gets its uh, yeah, origins yeah. in this film, I think. But even just like the production design too, like there's all these like weird patterns on the wall and like picking locations or settings that aren't glamorous. Like I feel like too many um, movies set on Mars trying to make it this like majestic thing. And it's just, Mars feels like a, a garbage pit when you watch this film. Like, you know, <laughs> even when it goes to like the Hilton, you've got this like ugly red kind of like, blasting through the windows and i love how um like everyone kind of like frowns when when quaid's talking about like i want to go to mars and you know his his wife is like eh, sharon stone's not really into it and then even when he goes to the recall place and he's like you know i'd like to go to mars the guy's like are you sure you wouldn't rather go to saturn <laughs> like they, they, you know and, yeah. and you know if for some reason this character just has like a fixation on it like he literally watches on the news a bunch of people being like shot up in the streets and then he's like ah coagan says it's just a bunch of extremists we should move to mars honey like he's so into this idea but it's just it feels like i you know the idea i guess it's it's supposed to be a little bit like this um right but like at that time someone was like i'm taking a vacation to lebanon you know <laughs> yeah yeah it's a, like you know and you get this whole like kind of backstory thing with like Cohegan selling the turbinium to like fund this war that's going on on Earth between like northern and southern hemispheres, I guess, or uh, something like that. But you know, it's it's this place with like rebel attacks and stuff like that, and it's it's it just doesn't feel 
glamorous you know it's not like the martian or you know there's a couple of these like mars films where you get these like sweeping vistas and it's like ah the tranquility of the red planet and here it's just like <laughs> you know you go to the the venusville and it's it's uh, it's this like trashy sleazy place and it's, it's wonderful like i'd much rather have that it's i i like when things feel gross right, like, like the big tourist spot is the last resort <laughs> yeah yeah well <laughs> he goes to the hilton and like and then he goes to like the the, the not great part of town uh you know he gets benny to drive and you know you have the last resort and of course that's where you have the mutants meeting up where rebels and you know it's it's no i guess not all the rebels are mutants but uh, you know there's like obviously like a correlation there between these um people who are being suppressed by Cohagen and uh you know obviously want to get freedom i mean like talk about like double double meanings um i always thought about um there's the woman with the three breasts and yeah he goes you know well she's free and she's like well maybe not free but available and the joke is that like she's a prostitute but you know, also like she's not free because she's living under Cohagen, and you feel like there's like a couple of these like <laughs> yeah. double meanings kind of worked in there, and you know that's that's sort of what I mean when I feel like it's a very polished when I say it's a very polished script. But uh, you know, I, I like all the, the kind of like rebel political stuff. You know, again, that also feels like very Cronenberg uh, in some ways, but also like very Verhoeven when you think about like even later sure. stuff like Black Book, stuff like of, Soldier of Orange, Soldier of Orange, of course. Sure. So. Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. Before we get off the look it's at the good. film, I just kind of mentioned the uh, the carpet at the hotel. <laughs> you oh, see yeah. so much <laughs> of it. It's just this really gross-looking shag carpet, you know, that you would see in like a. It's weird how it kind of goes. Like it's almost like an open. The side of the hotel goes out into like the side of the dome. It's a really like weird kind of setup, and I mean, I I feel like I've said a lot in the past couple of years, but like, you know, the, I feel like that the films I watch that were like warning about like a sci-fi future that you would never want to live in like total recall and like some of the other open science fiction movies in, in some ways i feel like reality caught up to that <laughs> in certain respects and there's like moments where i'm watching the film you know you've got like the full body scanners and the self-driving cars and like there's a lot of these things where i'm just like oh wait like we're kind of living in total recall now you know or watching the news <laughs> and it's it's like yeah you know saying one thing and you're like well, is that the truth i don't know but um you know, but it also kind of made me think about the way that some people can be delusional in not just like this outlandish way, but like, you know, sometimes in very simple ways, you get this like delusional line of thinking and then any kind of attempt to break that delusion, it's like actually just reinforces it, you know. I mean, um, yeah, I, I've heard I, like some people say about like conspiracy theories, how like, you know, they can actually be really comforting to believe in some of these conspiracy theories because they imply like oh a bunch of people are actually in control and controlling things and it's not this chaotic mess out there so <laughs> you know i like uh, that was something else that just like crossed my mind watching total recall again today like how it's this you know if you look at it as as this uh, runaway fantasy then it's like you know the dr edge edge scene it, it's so great because you know he basically looks for an excuse not to believe this guy and then he shoots him and spits out the pill and it's um, total chaos <laughs> intense total chaos you know so i i don't know that, that was just something i was thinking about how you kind of how how these fantasies or delusions work and how they get carried away and how they actually get like more more ornate and baroque and elaborate the more you kind of try to inject some reality into it that 
Um, Absolutely. It's, it's, it's you brought the Edge of Mars scene again because we can't yeah. talk about it enough, really. I mean, I just love it. It's, One of the things yeah. I love about that scene is um, Sharon Stone. I love her her bad acting in that scene, you know, her okay. intentional bad well, acting. She's so, I, at that point, I feel like you kind of know that she's, the way she plays it is perfect because, like, you can read it as, like, the sincere wife who's like, please, please come back. But also, it's like her just putting on an act. And then, like, the way she immediately switches after she after Schwarzenegger shoots uh, Dr. Edgemar, like, you know, now you've done it. And, like, yeah. I, I love, um, I mean, the way Sharon Stone is throughout the film is fantastic because, like, you know, she's on one hand the kind of, like, loving, kind of. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. well like, she, she, you know, I mean, there's the, the scene where they're going to reprogram Molina and he, the way he describes, like, oh, what a, you know, what Cohen thinks a woman should be like. And it's like, that's basically Lori. That's uh, Sharon Stone's character until she comes out and she has this like lethal cold blooded side, which is really great. And <laughs> I mean, there's, there's like a bunch of quotable lines from this film and a bunch of memorable moments, but like one of my favorite bits of dialogue is just the way she says like, you know, you know how much I hate this fucking planet. <laughs> like she just, <laughs> the, like venom in her voice is so great. And, you know, again, like, you know, is it really, is it really somebody who just like hates Mars or, uh, you know, is it just like, you know, your wife didn't give you the time of day when you're like trying to indulge this fantasy of like, Hey, maybe we should move there. I don't know. But <laughs> I, like, I just love that, that character, like, you know, you, you made me come to Mars and like, she just hates that. And speaking uh, of great lines, yeah. one of my favorites is where you're just talking about when they're going to uh, reprogram Molina and Co- Copenhagen uh, say Copenhagen, Cohagen says, um, <laughs> Uh, you're going to be Hauser's babe, which is oh, such yeah. a great reading by Ronnie Cox. It's like, Hauser's my totally gnarly, rad number one dude. <laughs> also, can I, can I say, I got to appreciate as a young person. <laughs> how like Ronnie Cox, you feel like Hauser was probably his only friend. You know, Lisa's yeah. like, oh, he's like one of my best friends. And he's so desperate for like Richter not to kill him. Yeah. And it's like, you know, I mean, you know, Hauser, he's, he's such a like horrible person. It's like probably the only person Cohagen could relate to. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but, well, it's funny that we know when he finally decides, well, okay, we have to go and kill him. He's completely resolute to that. Oh, my and you he, kind of he, appreciate the chaos within Cohagen yeah. because he, you know, he immediately smashes, the, yeah, the fish. Yeah, yeah. And that, of course, symbol of like, yeah, just kill everybody. I don't care. And that's, you know, completely. I mean, He's so uh, callous too at that point. Yeah, when like callous. all the, the mutants are like, I mean, you get go from like the, the goldfish dying to like the mutants all kind of suffocating. Suffocated and, death, yeah. And he's like, yeah. The, the way he just says, fuck him, it's like so casual and so callous. Like you just feel like, oh my God, you know, <laughs> he's terrible. But, um, but Sharon Stone in the Edge of Mars yeah. scene, though, uh, acting the character, acting badly, yeah, yeah. like she cares and she wants him back made me think of John Cassavetes and Rosemary's Baby, which is another <laughs> conspiracy movie. And like, is this reality or is this, a, you know, yeah. a case of psychosis setting in on this character? Um, so that's just another thing. It's like, oh, it's like another <laughs> It was real all along, Devil Baby. I <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but, yeah, no, I, I could definitely see that. Um, oh, there was something else I was going to say and I got... Yeah, in terms of the politics and, and Verhoeven oh, yeah. and politics, you know, character like Benny, you know, they say you're a mutant. How could you, you know, how could you, yeah. you know, be a, a double agent? I think that's just like a basic Verhoeven understanding of like how the world works and how people are easily bought and sold. And, 
you know how people will switch sides and you know i mean you see that again in black book and soldier of yeah. orange and everything I mean, black like book that. You know, there's that idea that like just because you're on the right side of history doesn't make you a good person even right you know i mean like when he's showing some of the, the resistance agents that were like anti-semitic or you know i mean like you know it's a through line that you know the politics can be messy and you have people on on multiple sides of things who are with their own motivations and perspectives and they're kind of in conflict in ways that don't necessarily fit a larger yeah. political narrative which is you know it makes it interesting yeah and you get richter I got who five you know, kids to feed five <laughs> kids to feed richter and his you know love for sharon stone i mean you know there's, yeah, yeah people can be complicated and verhoeven yeah, you know, yeah knows that better than anybody i feel i feel in um and maybe those complications are all pre-programmed you don't could even be know. <laughs> you know when he's he's threatening to like erase uh richter it's like you know maybe he means kill him but maybe he means just like you know i'll erase your ass like i'll i'll reprogram you and turn you into like a different person because he has that power <laughs> but exactly am i alone in wanting to see that party though that i never get to <laughs> I, I kind of wish you got to see a little bit more of the like glamorous side of Mars, just yeah. out of like contrast. But like, I, how I these guys party? Like, What's a party uh, for these guys? You know, it's probably a lot like um, uh, Miguel Ferrer in RoboCop celebrating just right. alone in his apartment with two prostitutes, <laughs> yeah. cocaine. Probably. That's probably what they're, they're in for that night. Just a really sad kind of party. <laughs> yeah, no, there's no way Cohagen's fun at a party. No way. <laughs> <laughs> no way that's the kind of thing where it's like just think of an excuse where we can leave after like 10 minutes because i don't want to hang out here anymore. hopefully i get my arms torn off so i don't have to go uh nice contrast too to robocop i noticed um the scene in the abandoned uh, cement factory where he sets up you know he puts he's got the towel on and he put sets up the uh screen and sees meets hauser for the first time he sees his real face for the first time sort of reminds me of robocop at the abandoned steel mill you know seeing taking his mask off and seeing his face as robocop for the first time it's kind of the scene where they meet themselves in like kind of an interesting way and i really love even though you know this is a message he's listening to from hauser right it's a pre-recorded thing uh when he they're basically the, in dialogue like he's there he's basically, talking to him yeah yeah when he pulls the bug out and you see him grin like he's watching him as he's pulling <laughs> this thing out it's such a great touch you know i mean that's a, that if you know nothing else that proves the unreality of this that this pre-recorded image is basically having a dialogue with him and reacting to things that he's doing yeah. it's just terrific well the way he introduces it like you know hey if you're watching this then that means like things have gone wrong you've got a wet towel wrapped around your head and like you're right from the get-go the way he describes the scenario it's it's exactly what, what he describes and then like later on when he's saying you know hey if you're watching this that means like quato's dead and like it, right. it's like everything went according to plan for for hauser but, but... right what's what's the line he says too perfect yeah like, it well, is too perfect <laughs> oh but what, what's great i feel like you know they sort of lampshade that by having ronnie cox um cohagen go on about like all the ways that the plan like almost fell apart with like oh you popped your memory cap too early and richter was trying to kill you and like you know frankly i'm amazed it worked like it it almost <laughs> like uh it's a way to kind of like make a skeptical audience kind of like okay okay i buy it like yeah. because otherwise it would feel flaws, like okay <laughs> things did not go swimmingly <laughs> It only seemed to, but let's let's deconstruct this a little bit right. just for fun here, real quick. Okay, sure, sure. So, if we're assuming 
that this is we'll we'll assume that you know that this is reality, right? That this isn't that he's okay. not still a recall. So the idea is, what's the plan here? They Hauser when he first infiltrates the rebels is himself, think, right? He's yeah, not right. had his had his memory wiped. So he's I think just he realized he couldn't get couldn't get past the auto because he's psychic. He would read his mind and he would know. So they came up with so, this plan. And the plan was to take pretty... him all the way back to Earth. Yeah, right. <laughs> all the way back to Earth to set him up as this slowly construction worker and spend six weeks with Sharon Stone as his wife uh, and then set the plan off, right? It's just yeah. funny that they have to go all the way back there. And, but, you know, it all, it all makes sense. It's like, okay, well, if, that's, if you want to get that elaborate, okay. But then uh, Richter has that line where he says, I should have killed him back on Mars. Back on Mars. But why would he have killed him at Mars if he's Hauser? You know, it's just like... <laughs> well, you almost like you really keep like, him in the dark. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think they, they really did keep him in the dark. But like, you kind of get the impression he probably didn't like Hauser even before. Yeah. Even before he was quit. I mean, like, there's there's that great moment where he's like, oh, is he going to remember any of this? Nope. And then he just pops him Much right in the jaw. <laughs> like, but like, I mean, again, kind of like trying to figure out the backstory to some of this stuff. Did Cohagen stick Laurie as quaid's wife specifically to piss off richter good question i i think he, like that, that's kind of the vibe i get right is like maybe assigned her to that mission basically just because he could like he's this sort of god like i have all this power richter. just to fuck with richter because you know you i mean he doesn't really seem to like richter that much he's yeah he uses him because he's effective but like he doesn't like him you know so that's a good point yeah and then, but that brings up another question <laughs> of like if laurie is supposed to be pretending to be his wife what does Richter think is going on here? <laughs> you know, does he think he's Hauser? Does he think he's still a good person who just got his memory wiped instead of being killed? Like it's, it's well, think, like, like how would he have accepted he, this? He probably believed what what Quaid believes at first is that uh, Hauser went double agent, mm -hmm. and that like that was um, that the the rewriting of his memory was a way to like get rid of him without killing him but that, right. i think that's probably the rationale why he says like oh i should have killed him back on mars right 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 all but, right so this is just we're just gonna have to accept that it's a very tangled <laughs> web but i think it's probably easy to say it's all happening up here you know it's not really it's not <laughs> well, reality i don't know i feel like it's a it's a great script and i feel like i've heard people say like oh you know it's it's stupid action there's a bunch of plot holes i'm not sure that there are a ton of plot holes i mean there's no. some weird weird science maybe but like it, it all sort of works within the kind of comic booky action framework i mean like what's funny i remember um i was watching the ridley scott the martian with my father and we had to pause that movie because he had to work out for himself if the uh, difference in pressure in the cabin was enough to cause an explosive blowout with the martian atmosphere <laughs> like he was that kind of invested in like whether the science is real or not but you never think twice about that when you're watching something like total recall where you know people explode into like clots of gore and there's you know faces being horrifically distorted and stuff like that because it's it's telling you like hey we're not that kind of movie and um, even if you did on this particular movie just say hey it's all in his head <laughs> sure exactly that's the, the final kind of way out is you know hey maybe you know it's just this is a fantasy that was kind of scripted by a bunch of lab technicians that this guy's mind ran amok with but yeah you know but like uh i don't know like the, the scientific stuff of uh you know turbinium and the, the big glaciers under the martian surface like it's it's more like a macguffin like you said yeah 
yeah, it's a MacGuffin, but it's still intriguing. You know, it works yeah, in, yeah, in the film. Absolutely. You know, it's all interesting. And anything that, I mean, Quado, the reveal of Quado is phenomenal. Like, that's a very oh cool that's, thing. Ever since I was a little kid, like, you know, it's like, um, you know, the Queen Alien or something like that, where you just take this effect, like, yeah, I consciously know that it's it's a puppet, but when I'm watching it on screen, it's like, oh, no, that's Quado. Like, Quado's in the room. And it's, like, I just sort of accept it as, like, a real living person when I'm watching the film. And I love, um, like, the touch of, uh, like, Marshall Bell when he kind of goes into... He's almost in like a trance or something like that. Well, Quado kind of takes over the body and how that's all done. Like it's, it's great. He, I don't know. He makes me think of, uh, of Yoda or some, something like that, you know, and it's, you know, the way he speaks is, is perfect. You know, that voice where he's saying, you know, open your yeah, mind. It's just, it's just slightly disembodied. It's like hypnotic or, yeah. you know, it's, so it's it doesn't like, feel um, like, it doesn't feel like it's not coming from him, but it feels like it's more than him, you know, like he's, yeah in the entire like, room it, it makes me think of like everything. um like you know the the beginning of um zentropa europa where like max Monsido's like literally trying to hypnotize the audience like right. it, it's that moment in the film where you almost feel like quato's hypnotizing you for real when he's his voice is like echoing and you kind of go into uh quaid's memories but it's like i don't know it's, it's such a great moment for me when, when i feel like i'm being <laughs> hypnotized and you know i, I like it's interesting that you know usually when you see something like that it's it's in a it's in like an art house film where somebody's like hypnotizing the audience you talk about like tarkovsky films being hypnotic it's not in raiders of the lost ark of mars you know <laughs> it's not yeah. in a film where like you know it ends with the, yeah again like raiders of the lost ark with the bad guy's face basically melting so <laughs> you know it, it's interesting yeah it's it's there's more to, i won't go too into this but because i yeah. just thought of it, so i haven't had time to think about it but the fact that you know we hear about Quado throughout the whole movie, and he forms this kind of mythology, you know, that he's yeah. uh, that we're kind of ready to meet him, and we're kind of there's a mystery that's already been set up, as opposed to all these characters who were introduced on the screen, and they have this constant thing where they're doing the they they move their face into the screen, you know, like they're looking this yeah. way, and then they move into the screen, and we know not to trust these images because they're on a screen and they're phony, they're fake, and. Quado is about as far away from screens as we get in this movie, you know, where it's like this back room, you know, where it's just the two of them. And it's the quietest scene in the film, you know, where uh, for a moment, at least there's no violence and there's no, you know, mayhem or anything. And that slow, slow way of talking and everything yeah. really kind of draws you into like the intimacy of this moment. It feels more, I'm trying to look for the right word here. It's, it just feels more real, I guess, than everything else something that you know and, and the way it captivated because it feels where more organic yeah. you know the, the way they set him up where it's like oh mutants think he's george washington and you send him up you think he's going to be like um you know an action hero again it's like yoda where they say oh you know looking for a great jedi warrior and it's this little little yeah. creature you know and, and then quote it's, it's like sort of similar when you know when you finally meet him he's maybe not what you're expecting but at the same time he kind of and like it's actually not that long of a scene like he's not on screen for very long but he leaves such a big impression because it's it's i don't know quarto for a puppet he's got a lot of screen presence so <laughs> it's great yeah no it's terrific oh there's just so much in this movie that's great. i know it's it, it's hard not to fall down that like hole of just saying like oh that's great and that's great and i love that line like it's <laughs> you know <laughs> but it's it's, it's easy it's to okay kind of turn because i that. i consider this the kind of episode like we did last year with hard-boiled and you right. know we, we're gonna do with high and low where it's just like let's just talk about how fucking great this movie is yep. you know, without worrying about it too much because some movies just deserve the praise even though you know they they're people love it 
it's considered a classic, like it still deserves to be talked about. We should still like, you know, deconstruct it as much as we can because it's worth it. You know, it deserves that kind of attention. You know, what and doesn't. It's, and it's, I, so go ahead. Oh, well, it, like sometimes it's nice to just go ahead and like talk about the stuff you like and you're always kind of, you know, especially with like podcasts, it's easy to kind of fall into like, oh, I got to move on to the next thing and dig into something new and find this. And then like, it's nice to kind of, you know, go home once in a while and just watch something that you watched a thousand times and love, <laughs> you know, yeah. top to bottom. And like, I'm not saying the film doesn't maybe is necessarily uh, without its flaws, but like, it's, um, it's just like such a excellent, charismatic, wonderful film. It's, and, you know, again, talking about the script and the pacing and all that, like, I feel like most Hollywood films aren't this good anymore, you know, or maybe they weren't ever as good as this on, on average, but it's like, it's true. you know, to, to me, it's almost like, a, you know, growing up, this was like my idea of what a big expensive film should kind of feel like and move like, and that the kind of charisma it should have and all the interesting character actors and all that stuff, you know, just on a superficial level, like, that's kind of what I, what I, what I want out of a big movie, you know, it's not, uh, I don't know, like, you know, I, I watch stuff and it's like paced so badly and then you kind of get to the big like CGI fight at the end. I was watching, um, I, well, maybe I won't say the name of the movie to be mean, but it's oh, like- Oh, go ahead. <laughs> like, uh, I, I was watching the Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. I think that's what it's called. And like, you know, it's it's not like I, I didn't want to enjoy the film, but it, it's just like, oh my God, this is such a slog. And then like, there's a CGI dragon flying around and like, I just stopped caring like at all. Like, you know, I just <laughs> I couldn't muster any kind of like enjoyment out of this film. And then like, you know, something like this, which again, I, I was almost not really that excited to put it on again. I was like, ah, I've seen it. I, like, I don't even know how like well it'll hold up. And then you just completely kind of fall under its power and you move along with it and you're traveling this film and you, you know, for the two hours that it's running, it's like the rest of the world doesn't exist. You're just in this movie, this dream. I don't know. That's, that's what I want out of, a, yeah, you know, I escapist mean, fantasy film. And then like, it makes you think about the escapist fantasy on top of that. So like, you know, talk about Verhoeven having it both ways. It's it's sort of a perfect escapist fantasy, and also yeah, the the, the two critique of that. So from yeah. last year that I had that reaction to were Suicide Squad yeah. and Benedetta. You know, yeah. Benedetta yeah. has the exact same Those skill are the level. This only film. two films. I I think the only two films I saw last year that I felt I'd like ever watch more than once. You know yeah. what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Like Suicide Squad, I probably watched like six times by now because it's just so entertaining. And like yeah. Benedict, I've, I've seen it about twice now. And like, I, I think about it so often on films where, you know, even though it's a new film, I I don't want to say like instant classic because that feels like a, a curse, but it's like one of those films where as soon as I watched it, it's like, oh, that's going to be in like my permanent mental repertoire of films to draw on and reference and think about and you know it's just it's in it's in there now it's in the memory bank so yeah yeah i was i was saying I, I our, our year end yeah. episode i went into benedetta thinking a little nervous thinking like i haven't really heard much about this i don't know yeah, what this is going to be still deliver and yeah and then coming out of it like why did i doubt him why did i think he wasn't going <laughs> to well, make I mean, a great like, film i mean speaking as, as like a longtime Brolvin fan it's like eh, not everything he's made has been great i mean like I, you know, nice anyone who thinks it's pretty great. I mean, it's, it's like, pretty great. I, I am not, not saying it's bad, but it's like, you know, every once in a while you get a Hollow Man where it's like, oh, you, Hollow, Hollow Man's I, I'm not even one. saying like Hollow Man's 
it's not even terrible, but it's just like you can tell at that point he's he's already got like his bags packed, ready to leave Hollywood. Yeah, it's just absolutely. like ah, I'm out the door, like whatever on the way out. It's uh, sure, you know. And then like there, there's such long gaps kind of in between his recent films, you know, Black Book, L, yeah. now Benedetta, that it kind of feels like, uh, like you know, is, is will he still be in touch with the next one? Is it still going to be as good? And of course it is. He's he's great, but like. You know, I understand having that, that kind of doubt because like a lot of filmmakers, you know, they're they don't stay necessarily great for their, their whole career. It's it's just a thing that happens for a lot of even even great, great filmmakers. You know, they reach a point where they're like, oh, wait, like, what the fuck is Billy Wilder doing like in the 70s? Oh, like, what, I mean, or, even, you know, <laughs> even Cronenberg, you know, his last movie. Sure, sure. Yikes. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, oh my I'm excited for him to get another shot at you know doing another film finally. Now he's supposed to be doing a. I guess it's not really a remake of uh, Crimes of the Future. He's just kind of reusing the title, but it's... Yeah. But uh, hopefully he'll go back to kind of... You know, oh my God. I, I watched... Uh, magic. I remember I saw Map, Maps to the Stars on a date. Oof. And like, <laughs> the girl I was seeing at the time, I was just like, hey, it's a new Cronenberg film. Let's go and see that. And like, we sat in like, almost like perfect silence for the whole thing. And um, what was and you looked, about And you looked it, over at her and said, this isn't going to work out. No, no. <laughs> but the, the weird part was like we kept having this like more than usual somebody from uh, somebody worked at the theater some kind of theater attendant poking their head in and like watching us and it was like this is really unsettling like what why why you keep checking in on us it's like did they think we we're gonna do something while the movie's playing did they want to check just to make sure two people were really watching this film where they could turn it off because we were the only ones in the audience um i should specify but it, it was a really weird experience and like i enjoyed none of it so <laughs> that was kind of my memory of the last Cronenberg thing that i i saw in the theater but uh, yeah but even it's it's not tipping the hat, as you said, you know, is a big, huge part of the of the secret magic of Verhoeven. I feel like even the stuff in Total Recall that feels like Hollywood schlock, like the Schwarzenegger one-liners and everything like that, feel ingrained in this in like a funny kind of self-referential way where it's not like Last Action Hero, where it's making one big joke about it. Yeah, It's yeah. just, it's part of this world, but it, it's it's aware of it. Which is more than we can say for like Aquafina's shenanigans and Shang-Chi, for example. Sure. <laughs> um, oh my God. Can you imagine if Last Action Hero was directed by Verhoeven? I wonder what that Man, would be like. What would that be like? McTiernan, like McTiernan, don't get me wrong, he's made some spectacular films, some of my favorite films, but it's also like, that was something going on there was weird. That was not working. But, you know, it's sort of like, I think that's a film that tried to have it both ways and then didn't. You know, that's an example of like, oh, we want to make a Arnold Schwarzenegger action film and also a critique of Arnold Schwarzenegger action films. And it's like, right. oh, shit, this doesn't work. And he can't do it. I mean, McTiernan's great, but he's not for Hoven. You know, that's no, what I'm no. saying. I'll say it again and again. You know, no yeah. one can strike that balance the way he does. Yeah. But before we finish uh, talking about it, because Chris Funderburg couldn't join us for the episode, sadly, but he would be remiss if we did not mention the NES video game right. made from Total Recall which I just have to mention was the first experience I had of this movie. Uh, I did sit on the stairs while my parents were watching it and hear the whole movie, uh, but I didn't, wasn't allowed to watch it at the time. So I got the Nintendo. I was allowed to get the Nintendo me, game, like, 
which keeps I mean, the plot intact. And uh, I'm a bit younger, so like the film was already on video by the time I was a kid. But like my parents just didn't care. <laughs> They're like, fine, go and watch whatever. <laughs> so um, I, I don't, I've heard, I, I, well, I guess I heard from you that the NES game is is pretty terrible. But I was thinking like Total Recall could work really well as a video game. I think better than than remaking it. It makes more sense to do it. Like, um, have you ever played uh, Bioshock? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Like uh, to me, that almost has like a total recall kind of feel a little bit to it at times. You've got this interesting setting with the domes, and it's mm-hmm. it's under the water, it's not on Mars, but like you got that interesting setting, and there's kind of the political stuff worked in with this uh, kind of Ayn Rand, Ayn Rand philosophy, right? That this civilization's based on, and then like it starts playing with the uh, identity, with like oh, you know, maybe or not even identity, but like the free will kind of angle of, you know, you think that you're acting on your own and it's like, oh, maybe you're not, maybe you're really like a mole or maybe you're doing something for the bad guy. It's, uh, you know, I, I think like a Total Recall game, you know, you can make something a little bit like Bioshock and that would be uh, cool. Um, <laughs> yeah, it could be cool as a first yeah. person shooter. I mean, you know, with a cool story interwoven yeah. into it for sure. I mean, this is basically, scenes. you know, video game movies weren't really a thing yet when Total Recall came out, but it, it feels like a video game movie to me in some ways. And, you know, talking about the existence connection, yeah. existence connection, uh, it's like, you know, it's already kind of moving in the direction where you're talking about, you know, I mean, when, you know, I'll, I'll sit down and play a video game for a couple hours and it's like, oh, you know, I wasn't in my memory, I wasn't sitting in my room. I was, I was off in uh, Anne Orlando or I would, you know, I was off in uh, <laughs> Super Maryland or whatever, you know, it's, it's like that where you kind of, feel like you know your memories are are from the video game world not from real life a little bit i was wondering have you ever seen um this animated short called rark i saw it uh for the first time on when i was a little little kid on the long ago and far away the show that was like hosted by jim joel jones okay um and in this animated short it's about this like incredible civilization and they realized that their whole reality exists within a dream. And then they're worried that like, okay, when the alarm clock goes off, our reality is gonna end. So they like find a way to actually go into the real world and pull out the dreamer and pull him into their world. And they put him in this like room that's full of pillows and uh, try to make it perfect. You know, they, they disable the alarm clock and try to set it up so this guy can just keep sleeping and their world can continue to exist. You know, and then they basically succeed. But then they said, well, you know, then the guy started dreaming about flamingos. Everyone just turns into a flamingo. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, I, I thought a little bit of that, like this idea of the, you know, the dream kind of overtaking the uh, reality, but that it, it sort of morphs and warps and turns into something else. And, you know. That's cool. Uh, What's its title again? RARG. R-A-R-G. It's... Um, I think it's up on YouTube. I forget okay. if it's okay. BFI or uh, somewhere I, I watched it recently, but, you know, and I don't like, again, sort of talking about the dream nature of Total Recall. Like I was thinking a lot of the the situations, you know, falling, suffocating, being chased, like it's very much things that happen in nightmares often. Like I've had nightmares about uh, suffocating. I always think of uh, like this like bad nightmare where I got bit by this little toad thing and uh you know and could only breathe out and not back in 
And, you know, the guide I was with in the jungle was like, well, you're just going to die now. Like, that's what's going to happen. And I could feel like the asphyxiation where you're just like forcing the air out of your lungs and you can't like suck it back in. And then like, I was thinking about that a little bit watching Total Recall where he's got this, like the first thing you see is uh, his his dream, which turns into a nightmare where it's like him suffocating. Yeah. And it just made me think that like a lot of the stuff in the film is very nightmarish in the sense that like, you know, falling, being chased, suffocating, like it's, there's something about that, which to me, it was like a little bit dreamlike or yeah, even, even uh, running into the, um, the x-ray machine where he sees a skeleton (laughs) almost feels like, ah, I'm not wearing any clothes kind of a night. (laughs) It's, it's funny that like, you know, there is something sort of, you know, the, the movie's not shot in a way where it's like, oh, this is so dreamy. It's not trying to make it feel like obviously dreamlike, but there's, there's a lot of interesting I don't know, touches a dreamlike feel. Yeah. That, that, that again, it doesn't sort of tip its hat, doesn't overplay its yeah. hand. It just it, it is that way. And that's yeah. that's just a great touch. Just a really fantastic touch. So awesome. Well, Martin, thank you so much for talking to me about this film. It's been great just revisiting <laughs> such a phenomenal film. I just I cannot well, say thank, thank you for having about. me. This this is a joy to prepare for and talk about. And yeah, uh any anytime you want to talk about sci-fi or Verhoeven or Philip K. Dick um, I'm happy to get in on that so this yeah, is a well, good episode thank you yeah absolutely well we got you coming up again on another episode uh, we're going to talk about a book by the Stugatsky brothers yeah I got to finally crack that. that open I've got it sitting on my shelf staring at me <laughs> we'll, have, we'll have you back for that we're going to have your article in the next few right. months that's going to be fucking terrific we're excited for it should that be exciting yeah it's yeah absolutely it's funny I've been like I feel like the last couple of things I wrote were all kind of history-centric and uh, it's been kind of good kind of going in the opposite direction. It's like, I'm going to write about the future. <laughs> There's something a little bit like uh, relieving in, in that. Uh, I Like, oh, I, I don't have to write about history and like research facts and stuff like that. I'm just going to, I mean, I'm still doing lots of research, but it's, it's just kind of a refreshing experience after you know, the last couple of things I've written. In the words of Ronnie Cox, it's going to be the best mind fuck yet. That's <laughs> perfect. That's my outro, Martin. That's how we're gonna end it. Like, you can't. It's it's done. <laughs>